Hello, everybody, and welcome yet to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho Podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high-yield orthopedic surgery topics, but you are now tuned into our OITE review series slash our board review series featuring myself and Dr. Spencer Bullwine, a orthopedic surgery fellow, oncology fellow at that, you know, very, very smart guy. And we are going through some more, you know, basic science. And if this is your first time listening to this podcast, go ahead and hit the subscribe button, tell a friend, and we will just continue on with this series. Hopefully this will help you get ready for any examination that you have coming up. So without further ado, let's go ahead and hop into today's episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Nailed Ortho Podcast. We are doing our OITE review, and uh, Central, we're finally on our last of our uh, basic science episodes. So I'm, uh, I'm happy for that. So, uh, um, you know, 100%. <laughs> I'm celebrating by doing this podcast and drinking a beer at the same time. <laughs> uh, what, what kind? Are you, are you a um, Yingling? Are you an ale or a Yingling person or, uh, you know, a lager person? Or what do you, what's your, uh, drink of choice um i guess i'm kind of doing the uh usual ortho bro uh and going with an ipa um so yeah at least that's what i'm drinking now i have a i have a few others in the in the fridge that i might pop open once we're done here and we can uh turn on the world series so we'll see yeah yeah you can't uh can't go wrong with ipas but um, well then, well let's go ahead and continue on then. So um, we'll kind of talk a little bit of kind of this perioperative stuff will be our our last section here. So um, starting off, so Spencer, say you know you had a patient that came in and you're taking care of them, and and so what, what would you be worried about if a patient had a particular rash on their chest? They were tachypnic, t- and they were confused after a closed femoral shaft fracture. So that would be uh kind of the classic test question presentation of uh, fat emboli syndrome um, with exactly what you had said. The, the triad is a petechial rash. Uh, they get mental status changes and then uh, can lead to eventual pulmonary demise and ARDS, which is where the fluid leaks into the alveoli and uh, that causes uh, pulmonary hypertension right-sided heart failure, and uh, ultimate patient demise. Um, And it can be seen really after an asymptomatic uh, interval with a long bone fracture, just like we had like a closed femoral shaft fracture. And as we will see more when we're talking about the pathology stuff, but a a prophylactic nail uh, will also uh, be a, a big reason for this fat emboli uh, syndrome. Yeah. So um, it's uh, the, the nice way. So the nice testing way that they will do it is they'll put out exactly what we said, that petechial rash. They'll talk about the patient being tachypnic, maybe requiring reintubation in the ICU and altered mental status. Uh, unfortunately, as uh, some have seen, if they've cared for a patient that has this, it's not always that clear cut in clinical practice, but definitely on a test uh, question when you get those, when you get that triad, 
uh, be looking out for a fat emboli. Um, but if you say you have a patient who's kind of leading down that path um, and the uh, discussion with the, either the trauma team or the uh, other uh, consulting services are like, hey, how are we best going to treat this? What's what's one way that we can really help that patient? Yeah, I mean, you can you can stabilize it so you can stabilize that fracture, you know, fix it, uh, nail it, whatever it may be. Um, but stabilizing that long, the long bone fractures early can kind of help prevent um, fat embolism syndrome. Now, you know, say you have a patient that, un, you know, unfortunately they sit on the floor for two, three days with, you know, a um, uh, segmental closed femoral shaft fracture. And, you know, you went into the room, you, you, you took a look at their, uh, their oxygen saturation. It was in the 80s. They're really tachypnic. They weren't doing well. They got a chest x-ray. Um, showed a lot of edema and infiltrates in the lung and your trauma team comes and says, oh, we, th we think they may have ARDS. What, what is the treatment for ARDS for acute respiratory distress syndrome? Yeah. First thing is to get them oxygen. That's, that's really what they're, they're having a difficulty with that perfusion gradient because the uh, alveoli are filling up with uh, inflammatory fluid and cytokines and everything like that, that the oxygen is just having a difficult time uh, being transmitted from the alveoli to the bloodstream. And so uh, starting off with 100% oxygen, um, a lot of these patients are going to require uh, intubation. So um, getting that started earlier rather than later is ideal um, just for overall care. And when you do that intubation, um, it's, I, I get it in real life, it may not be the orthopedic surgeons managing the, the ventilator in the ICU, but it's, it's good to keep in mind that you, you have these patients on uh, positive end expiratory pressure style ventilation or PEEP ventilation, um, just because that positive end expiratory pressure uh, will keep those alveoli inflated and keep the pressure in the alveoli greater than that of the fluid trying to get in. So it will keep them open. And uh, that's some of the stuff I remember from my uh, anesthesia residency days before I went into orthopedic. So, uh, nice. and then the, the last thing and the way that we can really help treat these patients, like you said before, is to address the fracture and, and kind of stop that uh, fat emboli cascade that they're, that they're already heading down. And, um, you, you might hear this, uh, kind of these terms thrown around and sometimes you can get caught up in these test questions by, uh, either reading them too quickly or not fully understanding exactly what they're getting at, but you'll hear people talk about a thrombus and an embolism. Um, for those for those listening and, and maybe confused, what what exactly is the difference between a thrombus and an embolism? Yeah, because they always just put it like TE, like BTE prophylaxis, and, and you know some people get confused. But a thrombus is a clot at an improper site. So the thrombus is like if you have a clot in your leg, that's a thrombus. But when that breaks off and goes somewhere else, that's an embolism. So a clot that is migrated is going to be an embolism, and a clot that is somewhere where it's not supposed to be, you can get clots in your lower extremities. You can get a clot in your upper extremity. That's, a, that's what we call a deep vein thrombosis. But if that clot breaks off and goes for, to, for example, the lungs, that'll be an embolism. Now, 
you know, we always talk about VTE prophylaxis, but what, what is a strong recommendation from the AAOS regarding VTE prophylaxis in patients undergoing total hip and total knee arthroplasty? Uh, one of them is to not perform post-op duplex ultrasound. And um, I mean, there was a there was a study out there that looked at uh, just getting routine duplex ultrasound on all their patients. And they found that the cost benefit uh, ratio was not ideal. And then uh, they give a moderate recommendation for pharmacologic and mechanical compression for patients not at an increased risk for a DVT. And going back to uh, what you're talking about between the thrombus and the embolism, um, people will say DVT prophylaxis and VTE prophylaxis. And I briefly mentioned that, but those are kind of two different things because one is to prevent a DVT from forming and technically VTE prophylaxis is preventing an embolus from going to the lung. So it's it's really not necessarily about truly preventing that DVT, although that's the ultimate goal. It's VTE prophylaxis is preventing that embolus, that venous thromboembolism, and DVT prophylaxis is just preventing a DVT. And they, they're not going to get that nitty gritty on the test, although it may feel like it from time to time, but it's, it's still just I guess the nomenclature doesn't quite translate as well, but um, anyways, uh, pharmacologic and mechanical compression for patients uh, not at an increased risk for DVT is the is the best recommendation that they can give. And how do these uh, we 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 all see them in the OR? We see them on all the patients, but uh, how exactly does a sequential compression device work? Yeah, just like you said, so we see them all, you know, in the OR all the time. The nurses will have you, will, will hook them up or ask you to hook them up. And so how these work is they decrease venous stasis by increasing peak venous flow. So if we go all the way back to like med school and we talk about Verkaus triad, uh, where you talk about these are things that lead you towards, you know, having a thrombus. So those three things you have blood flow stasis, hypercoagulability, as well as endothelial injury. So this is trying to decrease that stasis of the blood so again these compression devices are going to work by literally just literally compressing uh the veins and increasing your peak venous flow going back up to the heart now is a recurrent you know say we have a patient that has had a has had a dvt in the past so is a recurrent dvt or deep vein thrombosis more common after the first dvt or is it less common to have one uh, just like most things in orthopedics, it is more common if you have previously had the same diagnosis. So other big things in orthopedics that stand out, like a, a osteoporotic fracture, if you s- suffer one osteoporotic type fracture, either a vertebral fracture, hip fracture, distal radius fracture, you're at an increased risk for developing another one. Same thing here with a DVT. If you have had a DVT in the past, you're about four to eight times more likely to get a second DVT. And um, after talking with your hematology colleagues in in the outpatient setting, if you have a patient that develops one postoperatively, they may be on uh, potentially for life uh, uh, 
DVT prophylaxis or uh, for an extended period of time for like six months to, to a year until they have a negative duplex ultrasound. So um, yes, they are at, at, at an increased risk if they have a previous DVT. But uh, say you, um, you have a DVT um, and then there's something called a post-thrombotic syndrome. What is post-thrombotic syndrome? Yeah, so this is going to be seen when you have like chronic venous insufficiency and you're not able to get the blood back up to the heart. And this is a complication of that. So, you know, these patients will come in, they'll have swelling and pain in their lower extremity. And then this is going to be due to venous hypertension. So they'll have skin pigmentation as well as ulceration that you'll see in their, uh, in their lower extremity. So again, if you have chronic venous insufficiency, you can start to have venous hypertension and you have some skin pigmentation as well as some ulceration and patients can, uh, will, will, you know, come into the clinic and, um, and state that, you know, they have swelling as well as some pain in that lower extremity. Now, does a proximal or a more distal DVT have a greater uh, pulmonary embolism risk? A sheer just deduction and common sense reasoning, I think, is the best way to think about this. And that is not to bash on anybody that is like, well, I don't know the difference. It's one of those, I, I think, if you think about it, uh, whatever is closest to the lungs is most likely to get there. Uh, so a proximal DVT is a greater risk for a PE than a distal one. And I guess if you just think about it, if you have a more distal or below knee DVT, it has to be able to get more proximal in order to get to the lungs. So uh, above knee DVT has a higher risk for an embolism, uh, pulmonary embolism uh, development. And um Let's say you're, you're talking to the patient uh, preoperatively and, and they maybe have a few risk factors for uh, thromboembolic disease. Um, what would make you think that they would have those risk factors or what parts of their history would point you in that direction? Yeah, so the same thing like we were talking about earlier where it's more common um, to have a recurrent DVT if you have a, you know, a DVT in the past. Same thing with thromboembolic disease. So a risk factor is going to be a prior thromboembolic disease. So if this has happened to you before, you have a higher risk of having this happen to you again. Other factors include increasing age over than over 40 years old. Um, if they're immobile, so they're still for a really long period of time, if they're in, as well if they're obese. So again, risk factors for thromboembolic disease are going to be any prior thromboembolic disease, increased age over 40, if they're immobile, as well as if they're obese. And I think I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but, you know, for repetition's sake, we'll go over it again. What is uh, Ver Virchow's triad? Uh, that will be, uh, I mean, all the stuff that we're kind of just talking about where uh, you have venous stasis. So that um, uh, whether that is uh, by being a more sedentary type person uh, or by sheer fact that you're not moving as much after surgery. So post trauma or post arthroplasty in pain, people aren't going to want to be as mobile. So venous stasis, uh, endothelial damage caused by trauma. Uh, what that does is, is it, it releases and exposes either the basement membrane or other collagen fibrils uh, to 
um, be present in the bloodstream or be present to the platelets floating by, and then you can get platelet activation and start a clot. Uh, and then hypercoagulability, which is basically just very sensitive coagul, uh, like the coagulation cascade. It's it's just one of those things that you uh, you have to be cautious of and, and know that it's endothelial damage, venous stasis, and hypercoagulable state. And I, I briefly talked about the clotting cascade, but what is the final product of that clotting cascade? Yeah, so the final product is going to be thrombin 2A. And so what thrombin does is going to convert soluble fibrinogen into insoluble fibrin. So, you know, thrombin 2A converts soluble fibrogen, fibrinogen into insoluble fibrin. That's why you, you talk about getting that fibrin clot. Um, so moving on, what are some genetic disorders um, with, with clotting? You know, so what are some genetic clotting disorders where, you know, we've had, you may have patients with these and you kind of just need to know, okay, they're, they're at increased risk for clotting or they're at a decreased risk for clotting. What are some of those? Uh, those uh, can be broken up into um, into what what makes a hypercoagulable state. So uh, whether you have an increase in the clotting factors compared to anti-clotting factors, and uh, or a decrease in the anti-clotting factors, so you have more uh, clotting factors available. And I know I'm saying clotting a lot, but uh, bear with me here. The, <laughs> if you have like a protein C or S deficiency or an antithrombin 3 deficiency, all of those things, protein C, protein S, and antithrombin 3 are circulating in our blood to prevent clots. So if you have an absence of those proteins, you're more likely to clot. And then if you have things like uh, factor 5 Leiden, uh, either uh, increase in uh, factor eight or hyperhomocysteinemia. Uh, those are all conditions where the uh, number of clotting factors are, or pro-clotting factors are elevated in the blood. And that can make your blood more prone to developing clots. I think for our test, whether it's OITE or ABOS, knowing factor five Leiden, protein C and protein S deficiency. If you're going to, if you remember those three, I think you'll get a lot of these basic science clotting type questions. Correct. Is knowing which one, which one belongs to which class. Um, so so yeah. keep those in mind. And, uh, uh, let's are, would you say that, uh, most patients with a DVT prevent, uh, present as uh, being symptomatic? No. So there are a lot of asymptomatic um, DVTs, and actually more are, are, are actually going to be asymptomatic. So most commonly, DVTs are going to be asymptomatic. So just know that and know that not all of them are going to present with a whole bunch of symptoms. And so should we, I mean, if we, if we have all these DVTs that are coming around left and right, and we a lot of these are asymptomatic, should we screen everybody? for a DVT with a duplex ultrasound? Uh, we shouldn't. And the reason for that is, uh, although more DVTs are asymptomatic than symptomatic, they still present in a relatively low percentage of the population. 
Um, so the cost benefit uh, ratio of ordering a duplex ultrasound on every patient post-op is not uh, going to really um, prevent disease. Um, but also uh, the asymptomatic DVTs tend to be those distal to the knee DVTs, which are more considered the uh, safer DVTs to have and the ones that will typically resolve on their own. The more proximal DVTs, uh, fortunately, are the more symptomatic ones, um, and they will uh, also be the ones that you would want to order a duplex ultrasound for. So uh, we shouldn't screen everybody, but still keep it in your mind if you have uh, things like unilateral swelling of the leg, um, redness, and the Homan's uh, test, which is that kind of extension of the great toe, uh, pain with extension of the great toe. So um, if you are suspecting that a DVT has propagated to the lungs and has developed into a pulmonary embolism, um, what are the things you should get in preparation of like a, an ICU or a hospital medicine consult? Yeah. So, you know, if you're an intern, if you're a you know, lower level or something like that, and you're getting called um, about a patient and they're telling you, you know, you know, somebody that has previously just had a, you know, femur fracture, a long bone fracture, and either they just got fixed or they're just sitting on the floor and saying, oh, they're having, you know, I'm looking their oxygen satur saturation, they're a little bit low and they're a little bit to kidney. Initial things you can do, again, this is like step three stuff is get an EKG. Um, you know, you can check to see if there's any the ventricular hypertrophy, how to read all that stuff? Don't ask me that. <laughs> but I know, uh, I know that um, uh, you want to start off getting an EKG. You want to get an ABG, so arterial blood glass. You can look to see if the pH is uh, increased or decreased. See if they're acidotic or if they're alkalotic. Uh, what are you know carbon dioxide levels, oxygen levels, and you also want to get a chest X-ray. So you know those are the initial tests to obtain if you are suspecting a PE. So you'll get an EKG or electrocardiogram. Uh, ABG or arterial blood glass, as well as a chest x-ray. Now, what is the best test for a suspected pulmonary embolism? Uh, so that would be the spiral CT angiography. Um, it's, it's best to confirm a PE. Uh, it doesn't necessarily decrease mortality um, because the the sheer knowledge of a pulmonary embolism and the outcomes of having a pulmonary embolism really aren't uh, correlated with each other. It's, it all comes down to the treatment and how fast the treatment is uh, started in, in cases for these, uh, this PE. Um, but you can also, if, you, if a patient has uh, ongoing renal failure as well, or uh, some sort of chronic kidney disease where any uh, shot to the kidney is going to be more uh, dangerous to the patient than getting a, this spiral CT angiography. You can get a VQ scan, um, but it's, it's not necessarily, I would say, the gold standard. I would say the gold standard is that spiral chest CT. Um, and then going back to the uh, EKG real quick, uh, you mentioned that step three business. So uh, one thing I, I don't know why I remember this, but I don't think I'll ever forget it is looking for that S1Q3 
T3 pattern or core pulmonale pattern uh, mm. on an EKG. I, I don't know exactly how to look for that, but that's just one of the buzzwords. Um, so you're getting kind of a double whammy for those uh, interns studying for step three as well. <laughs> um, but also, I think I misspoke. I think I said left ventricle, but it's supposed to be right ventricular hypertrophy. I think I just thought about that. But yeah, yeah and I think on. that that is what the S1, Q3, T3 pattern is. But again, uh, if you showed me an EKG, uh, I wouldn't be able to pick <laughs> it up. But the most common uh, EKG finding is tachycardia because the yeah. heart is working harder than it, it normally is. So it will be tachycardic. That may show up on these exams. I mean, we are we should know that tachycardia is anything greater than 100 beats per minute and bradycardia is anything less than 60. And that's just being a doctor. So knowing tachycardia and ABG chest X-ray and spiral chest CT is key for these pulmonary embolism patients. Um, and uh, let's say we've high-fived, our hip arthroplasty has gone perfectly, our cup is in exactly 20 degrees of antiversion, exactly 40 degrees of inclination, our stem fits perfect, and we start our patient on DVT prophylaxis. What are some of the risks associated with starting a patient on DVT prophylaxis? Yeah, so, I mean, if you think about it, you are stopping um, clots from forming, so you can bleed <laughs> if you just think about it, you know, so uh, a risk of DVT prophylaxis is going to be bleeding. Uh, this can cause a hematoma formation. And, you know, depending on how bad it is, it may possibly require returning to the OR for, you know, possibly irrigation debridement. If you're doing an arthroplasty case, it just may warrant a, a poly swap or a, a polyethylene liner exchange. Um, so, you know, just know that there are risks with DVT prophylaxis. Um, so just know that. Um, now, we, we spoke about one of the ways a little bit earlier, but what are some mechanical ways to prevent a deep vein thrombosis? Uh, so the best way, in my opinion, is to get the patient up and moving is the best mechanical way to prevent a DVT is to try and get that patient back to their normal life as quickly as possible. Um, you can put on the intermittent uh pneumatic compression devices, uh, which are the ones that we see all of our patients on where they, they squeeze the leg around the calf every like 30 seconds to a minute. Um, you have ankle pumps, you have foot pumps, um, ones that if you have a tibia fracture, like a tibia shaft fracture, you're not going to put a sequential compression device around their tibia because that would just be painful every time it's squeezed but they do make foot specific pumps, which I think in the literature have been shown to be equivalent to the calf pumps. So, so um, you, you definitely can use the foot pumps, um, compression stockings. Uh, they are really just to help the edema in the leg. They're not necessarily there to prevent a DVT, but it's to prevent overall edema in the leg. And then if you have a patient with a brain bleed or a GI bleed or uh, severe anemia where you're worried that if you put them on a blood thinner that uh, they'll be worse off. You can always 
consult your uh, vascular or interventional radiology colleagues for an IVC filter. Um, those are all kind of the non-pharmacologic ways uh, to prevent a DVT or prevent the DVT from going to to a pulmonary embolism, embolism. in the case of a, a IVC filter. Thank you all for listening to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. I hope you are continuing to enjoy our basic science review. Uh, we hope you are liking it. Please, if you haven't already, subscribe. Subscribe to our YouTube channel as well. I know this video or this podcast isn't on YouTube, but please subscribe to the channel. And feel free to follow us at Nailed It Ortho on Instagram, Facebook, as well as Twitter. So until next week, stay strong, my friends.